Hello everyone and welcome to Lessons of Innovation, the podcast that brings you valuable tips and advice to help you succeed on your innovation journey. I'm pleased to welcome Rob Fitzpatrick, who for those who do not know him, he's an entrepreneur, a Y Combinator alum, and the author of the Mom Test, which we will be discussing today. Rob has designed startup education programs for a bunch of accelerators, taught at Oxford and UCL, and built products used globally by brands like Sony and MTV. Rob, I'm very excited to have you with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about products and learning. You know, The Mom Test is a book I read quite a few years ago. And ever since, I've been recommending it for many entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs who often struggle uh, with getting valuable information when speaking to clients uh, about new products or businesses. But before we speak about your book, I'd like for a start to tell us a little bit more about your background, how your entrepreneurial journey started, and what are you up to those days? <laughs> I've been a startups and business, small business all the way. Uh, I was going through grad school. I, I, I knew I didn't want to get a job. I felt like I wouldn't be prepared for the uh, the bureaucracy of what I believed would would hit me if I got a traditional job. And I hey, went to university for programming. And so I thought, okay, research, academia, fine. Uh, I realized that uh, that is even more bureaucratic. And at about that time, when I was in grad school, I learned about startups. So I dropped out. I applied to an investor called Y Combinator with what was basically my graduate research. They said, that's a terrible idea. It'll never work. It'll never scale. It's not a business. But they loved the product I had built as a demo, and they loved the team I had put together. And so Paul Graham, it was only a 10-minute interview. We flew to California for a 10-minute interview. He said, listen, if you can come up with an idea that doesn't suck by the end of this meeting, you know, we'll probably invest in you. I was like, wow, we've only got six minutes. And he goes, yeah, hurry. And so I was like, will you, will you help? And he goes, okay. And so we had a little idea jam and uh, they called us later that day and said they were investing in us. And we got thrown into the startup world with essentially no preparation and no experience. None of us knew anything about it. And we were sitting alongside these teams who, who, who just seemed so wise and they knew exactly what to do. We were in the cohort with Dropbox, with Songkick, with a bunch of other incredible companies. And you know, we struggled through, you know, we eventually raised some more funding. We got some good customers, as you mentioned, and three or four years later, we failed. And I was so upset, you know, because I was the developer. I wanted to write code, but PG and my later investors, they told me I had to go talk to customers. And I was like, okay, I hate doing this, but I'll do it for my team. I'll do it for my business. I'll do it for my product. And then we still failed. And it was only later as I was starting my next set of businesses that I learned that, you know, you have to do it properly. It's not enough just to talk to people. Uh, naively asking for feedback is almost worse than doing nothing. And so it took me a while to figure out how do you do it right? And that's what the book was about. And that's how my entrepreneurial journey started. And since then, uh, I've much preferred the bootstrapping lifestyle. I like working with a small team, with my friends, on my own terms. And so since then, it's been 13 years now, I've been running businesses. Uh, and after the first one, they've all been bootstrapped. Right. So for those who are not familiar with your book, what was it all about? So why did you write it? I mean, you gave a bit of an indication out there, but can you tell us a little bit more about it at a high level? And why is it called The Mom Test? <laughs> so in 2008, and sometime before then, uh, Steve Blank wrote a book called uh, The Four Steps of the Epiphany, which was about customer development. And the basic idea is that you've got a process for product development, which ends in a product it works well and it meets engineering standards, et cetera, you should have a parallel process for building your understanding and relationship and success with customers. And it should start before the company is publicly launched. Just like you start building your product before your company is publicly launched or your product is announced, 
you, you should start developing the relationship with customers. Makes a ton of sense. Then Eric Reese kind of really popularized this idea with Lean Startup. And that was right when I, I started my company in 2007. We raised our seed round after YC in 2008, right as the economy was collapsing. Um, it was a tough time. And everyone was saying, you know, go read this book, do what Steve Blank says, go talk to customers. And I tried. I tried so hard. I spent so much time, so much emotional suffering. And that's why I say it's not enough just to do it. You need to do it properly. And we had a wonderful advisor named Peter Reed. And he flew out to Los Angeles with us from London to join us in an important meeting with Sony because what we were experiencing didn't line up with what we were doing. Like the results we were getting didn't match our activities. We were getting these great leads and they weren't converting, et cetera, et cetera. And so he said, there's something that doesn't make sense in this data. I need to be in the room with you. So we flew out to Los Angeles. He sat in the room and after the meeting, you know, he'd sort of helped and contributed to the meeting. Really, he took it over in a, in a benevolent way. And Afterwards, he said, okay, I know exactly what you're doing wrong. And having seen him do it properly, I understood also. It's like, ah, this is how early stage customer conversations work. And that's when the learning began. But by that point, we'd already burned through most of our money. We were too late. It was We'd been too slow. We're competing with Facebook and Twitter, and you don't want to be slow against those two. <laughs> so I didn't get the benefit of the learning until later. And so I wrote the book. And the reason it's called The Mom Test is because people say you shouldn't ask your mom if your business is a good idea because your mom loves you and she thinks everything you do is great and she's going to support you. So she's biased. You say, mom, I've got an idea for an app. She goes, oh, it's incredible. It's so smart. It's so innovative. I'm sure you're going to be very successful. So what I learned, and so people say, don't ask your mom, ask strangers. But I learned that strangers lie to you also, maybe not as extremely, but there's a tremendous number of biases and opinions and fluffy hypotheticals and all this stuff that feels like data when you ask for it because you're in a meeting and you're asking for feedback, but it actually doesn't correlate with intent to buy or likelihood to use. And so my view is it's a good question, if not if you're talking to someone who will tell you the truth, because in my view, there are unicorns, they don't exist. It's a good question if it's structured in such a way that even the most biased person, your own mother, can't lie to you. Not because she's trying to tell you the truth, but because you've designed the questions properly to avoid these biases. And so that's what's called the mom test. And that's where the book came from. So why it is actually that hard to speak to clients and how then you avoid those biases? <laughs> Every meeting becomes a pitch meeting, a demo meeting, or a sales meeting by default. So if you go in and you're pre-product, you're, you're, you're meeting with a potential customer. They don't quite know what it's about. Are they trying to sell something to me? Are they trying to get my money? Is this a negotiation? What is this? So you sit down and they go, so uh, you're, you're building a product, right? Uh, tell me about it. Show it to me. Boom. You're now in a pitch meeting. As soon as you introduce the product, two things happen. If they like you and if they want to support you, then what you've done is you've put your ego on the table. You've revealed that you care about the success of this product. You know, you've pitched to your boss that this product is worth building, or you've secured the budget to make this thing happen, or you've, you know, gone out and raised funding or whatever. You're doing it on your own sweat and blood and tears. The fact that you're working on it and you're there shows that you care. And, and most people don't want to see you cry in front of them. And so they're going to pull their punches a little bit. Uh, and they'll give you these these kind of vacuous, uh, like political non-answers. They'll say, wow, it's so innovative. Wow, the design is beautiful. Wow, I've never seen anything like this before. Hey, does it integrate with Excel? They'll, they'll give you these compliments and opinions and suggestions, which aren't intent to purchase. 
and they do this because because you put your ego on the table. And then in your brain, this all gets mangled together. And you leave that with kind of this emotional memory of, wow, they said really supportive things about this thing I really care about. And so your brain treats that as, well, they're going to become a customer. And then that causes you to go tell your boss or go tell your investors or tell yourself and then overinvest in something where you don't actually have any evidence. All you did is you went and you fished for compliments. And so you got a compliment. It's like going out and annoying someone or, or, or into giving you a fake phone number. It's not progress, right? <laughs> That's not real data. It doesn't go anywhere. It just causes you to make worse decisions in the immediate future. So is there any warning flags in there that will indicate for those who might be doing interviews at this meeting going somewhere <laughs> and now I should like pivot? There's two concepts here. One is if you are going to talk about your idea, you need to also ask for a commitment afterwards if they are saying nice things. So you give a demo, you give a pitch, you talk about your idea, you talk about your vision. They say, wow, that's incredible. This could totally change the industry. What does that mean? Nothing. That's an empty compliment and it's a polite way to end a meeting. But if you say, hey, it sounds like this is really important for you. Your boss would need to sign off on this, right? Would you be comfortable introducing me to him or her? Boom. You've now asked for a commitment. You've asked for a reputational commitment, an introduction to someone they care about. This could be their tech team, their lawyers, their boss, whoever. It doesn't matter. Other types of commitments you can ask for. Um, so reputation is one. Time commitments are another. The classic put the next meeting in the calendar with a clear objective and outcome. Salespeople use this all the time. Um, another one is money, pre-orders, deposit, letter of intent. You can't get away with all of these all the time, but there's usually some commitment that's appropriate to the stage of development that your product or idea is at. So if you show or pitch the product, you got to ask for a commitment because that immediately cuts through all, through all the fluff. Now, it's important that you don't do this in a pushy way because if you browbeat people and you push them and you back them into a corner, they're going to lie to you and you've just destroyed your own data. So you need to make it as easy as possible for them to opt out That because declination is the data when they say no. Like that's what you're looking for. Aha, we're not quite there right yet. Something's wrong. Is it the wrong value proposition? Are they the wrong customer segment? So you got to really value the no's rather than try to roll over them. So that's one idea. If you pitch, commit. The idea before that and where the bulk of the learning comes from and the core concept of the mom test is before you introduce your idea, you've got a magic space where there's no bias. And you can use that time to simply ask about their life, specifically what they're already doing and why. So instead of saying, hey, let me show you my incredible email security product, you say, hey, weird question before we get started. How are you guys dealing with email security? Now, of course, in a formal context, they might feel that you're going to use this against them in negotiation. They might feel it's a tactic. This sort of conversation, this sort of deep learning, where you're trying to unpack someone's mistakes and insecurities and frustrations and embarrassments... It really benefits from a casual context, but you know that's all tactical. The big concepts are before you pitch, ask about their life without introducing your idea, and once you've introduced your idea, ask for a commitment. So, so can you tell me a little bit more about ask about their life? How how does that look like? Uh, I once had an idea to build a contact management system for people who get a lot of inbound unsolicited deal flow like venture capitalists was who I had in my mind because VCs are always complaining about how much email they get. And I got 10 times less than them and I was still suffering, right? I was going crazy. And I thought, oh, that could be, you know, they must feel this pain even worse than I feel. That would be great. So what I did is I set up a conversation under a different context. 
but I knew it was going to give us five or 10 minutes of chit chat at the beginning of the conversation. And I used that time. That's where the real learning was going to happen. And so the meeting began, Hey, Philip, how are you doing? Hey, Rob, what's new? It's like, listen, oh man, what's new? I've been getting killed by email and you must have it so much worse than me. How do you deal with it? And, and, and Philip said, oh yeah, it's, it's incredible. Like it's the worst part of my week. And I'm thinking, aha, it's the worst part of his week. He doesn't even know I have an idea at this point. He doesn't know that I'm validating anything. He doesn't know that I have a horse in this race. I'm simply talking about the email problem. And we go on and we talk about it. And it's like, so I follow the rule, like ask about what they're already doing and why. What do you do about it? How do you survive? You've been in this job a couple of years. You must have a process. You know, I'm trying to dig into the existing workflow. I want to understand how does it work? And he says, oh yeah, it's a nightmare. You know, we must get a thousand, 2000 emails per week. But actually, most of them go to our associates, our interns. You know, they, they probably filter out 90, 95%. I probably only have to seriously look at 50. And of those, you know, 40 are an instant no. The other 10, I write their names and numbers on a post-it note. I put it on the wall. Once a week, I send them an email or give them a call. I check on it on their progress. And we either advance them or I throw away their post-it. And I thought about it for a second. And, and I said, you know, I mean, it's old school, but that actually seems like a pretty good process. It seems like you've got this under control. And he thought for a second and he said, actually, yeah, now that you mention it, I thought it was bad, but now that I've talked about it, it, it works really well. And I thought, oof, this person does not have the problem. Now, does that mean the idea is dead? No, there are ways to pivot it. Maybe the people who really have the problem are the associates who have to do that initial filtering. Or maybe I can go up a level and there's a more strategic overview level, right? But this particular person who I talked to did not care. They did not feel the problem. And are they going to change their whole workflow to embrace a new piece of software? No way. That, that, that only took five minutes. And then he said, so anyway, what did you want to talk about? You know, and I'm like, oh, nothing, right? Uh, you know, we caught up and we had a nice chat. But to me, that was the ideal customer conversation because it introduces zero biases because I'm only asking for facts about his life. Now, if I had gone into the future, I would have gotten lied to. If I'd said, hey, what would you love if your email did? I'm going to get lied to. Opinions, hypotheticals about the future. No one knows. Uh, but if you keep it, what are you already doing and why? That gives you your foundation of insight. And then you can take your own visionary leap to figure out what the product might be. And then obviously you complement that with analytics, with user testing, with sales, with validation conversations. This isn't the only tool in your toolkit, but it's something that most people skip and it provides very valuable foundations and prevents you from making a lot of expensive mistakes later. So, so ask about the past and the present. Don't ask about the future. Yeah. So at times, you know, entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs assume that their clients do not necessarily know what they do not know. So the question becomes, when should you take a leap of faith to even if you have such a feedback, still go ahead with your idea? If you're building incremental innovations, so let's say you're currently building smartphones, it's a pretty well understood product category. People know what they want. You can do a better job of the things they already care about. Battery life, screen size, resolution, et cetera, et cetera, right? In those cases, traditional market research works pretty well. It's fine. It's going to give you a good signal. You just It's about execution. If you're building a disruptive new product or you're solving an unsolved problem or you're inventing new technology, something more like more innovation-led rather than uh, incremental, those traditional tools of market research fall apart because people don't know what they need, as you said. And the way I think about this is if you imagine someone going into the doctor with pain, they say, you know, doctor, I've got this pain. It would be crazy for the doctor to say, no, your pain isn't in your belly. It's in your knee. Like 
it would be crazy for the doctor to say what the pain is, but it would also be crazy for the patient to prescribe themselves the solution. And this is how I feel about feature requests and vision. The customer owns their pain. The customer knows what they're trying to achieve. The customer knows what their problems and frustrations are. So you go into those conversations like the doctor, tell me where it hurts. Tell me what you're trying to do. Tell me how this happened. You're trying to understand their pain and their goals and their frustrations. But then the patient doesn't get to say what medicine they want. The doctor goes away. They, they think about those pains and their problems. And they're like, I think this is the medicine you need. Try it. If it's not working for you, which, you know, in a product context, you look at uh, retention, you look at engagement, you look at sales. If the medicine's not working, the doctor might try a different medicine, right? Sometimes pain is tricky and it's not exactly clear how to solve it. But that doesn't mean the doctor goes in, the patient walks in, the doctor goes, aha, you're, this is your problem. It's like, that's crazy. So it's a bit, it's, it's a cooperation between customer and product designer. They both have a part to play. And Initially, the, the product designer's place is to listen and understand, and then they leave and they come up with their visionary solution, and then they watch the metrics or they watch the data, and they, they try to understand if it's working. When do you draw the line? When's enough validation? Which was the second part of your question. Depends on the type of product you're building. If you're solving a very well-understood, explicit problem for a fairly self-aware customer, like let's say you're solving a problem for enterprise customers, and they're able to say, this cost us 2,000 hours and $200,000 last year you're going to be able to get a very clear signal of validation and intent to purchase simply from talking to them. But at the other end of the spectrum, you've got things that change a workflow like Slack or Zoom, or they're just better, or, or they're trying to reinvent a category that people are already happy with. Like what the Segway, the little two-wheeled scooter, tried to do to cars for city transport. Some of those were successful, some of them less so. And in those cases, you need the prototype in users' hands much sooner. And I would say this was the crucial flaw of the Segway and it's what Slack got right. They understood how people used email. They understood how people used video calls. But then they didn't waste a ton of time trying to say, what do you think if I made video calls better? What do you think if there was chat, but it was serious? Like You're not going to get a clear validation signal from that because it's not solving an explicit problem. It's making a 10x product or process or workflow improvement to something that's already good enough. Uber was the same way on the consumer side. No one had a, an explicit problem with taxis. They just thought it was okay to sometimes stand in the rain with your arm out. Uber came out though, and it was so much better that people eventually changed their workflow. Those are riskier products to build. I'm not saying they're less good. Like they're big, right? They, they're, those are big successes, all of them, except for Segway. But they're riskier because you need to have pretty well-engineered, well-designed technology before you can get a clear signal. Um, and in some cases, you can be so innovative that you run into the same thing, which is what's happening to 3D printing. People didn't understand the use case. And so the companies who are leading 3D printing have to keep building the technology, building the technology to a very polished level, which is, is high risk. But, you know, sometimes that happens. It's just based on the nature of the problem. So the question becomes, when do you actually move from one phase to another? Like you say, this is enough. I spoke enough to clients, get enough data. And now it is the time to actually create that product. So if you're building something that's a it's only going to succeed if it's a 10x product improvement. It's kind of a nice to have, but it's better. You need the prototype immediately. And you need the prototype because otherwise people don't get what you're talking about. Imagine email, but better. Like that, that conversation makes no sense. You can talk to people to understand them, but as soon as you understand them, you're, you're not going to be able to have a pitch conversation or you're not going to be able to do pre-sales. You need the prototype. And Steve Blank always said that customer development and product development happen in parallel. And this is why. 
it's more expensive, it's more risky, but sometimes it's the only way for certain types of ideas, certain types of products. And he, he talks about in his book, he's been saying this since the early 2000s, you have two separate teams. You have a customer team and you have a product team. And as either one advances, it allows the other one to make the next set of better decisions and to advance a little bit further. As you have more conversations, that informs your next product iteration. As the product develops, that makes you more credible and informed with customers. And you're able to ask for a bigger set of commitments. And these two things move along together. So in that case, like start them at the same time. Uh, in other cases, if you're solving a very explicit, well-defined problem, you can get pre-sales before you write a line of code or, or, or build even a, a prototype. Like in other cases, if you're marketing and nice to have the consumers, like you're building a video game, there's zero point in customer conversations. And, and you just need to start with the prototype. And then you talk to people afterwards to understand the analytics and the usage behavior. So it depends on the type of idea. But typically, I would say zero conversations is suboptimal. But you're also never going to reach statistical significance in these early stages. You need to embrace small scale, messy qualitative data. If you try to reduce it into a statistically significant chart, you've destroyed the interesting parts of what you just gathered, right? So like capture the exact words, capture the emotional signals. Those are the make or break in the early stages, right? It's this foundation of insight. Um, and during your conversations, if you start to feel like you've heard it all before, then you've probably reached the point of diminishing returns. And you're going to need to kick the product down the road a little bit to unlock the next stage of learning in your conversations. So it's a feeling more than a number. It's like, yeah, I've heard this all before. Whereas right. if your data is all over the map and you keep hearing new things, that's usually a sign that you're talking to too many customer segments simultaneously and you haven't really figured out who the product is for and what their problem really is. So in your book, uh, you suggest that one should always walk to a meeting prepared and have like top three important question already planned. Why this is important? And how can we stay unbiased when our idea faces any rejection? One of the mistakes that I've seen with customer conversations is going in too prepared with a list of 20 questions or an exact script for the, like sometimes people send me emails and they go, hey, this is the conversation I'm planning to have. What do you think? And it's just too detailed. You know, people don't enjoy it. If you put people in an unenjoyable formal interview context where they're the test subject and you're the scientist, they're looking to get out of it and they're not going to be opening up and talking about their security problems or their fears or their budgets or all the stuff that you really want to know about. But also, if you go in too open-ended, you're just like, hey, let's just talk about your life. You always end up off track. So the way I balance those two is I go in with around three kind of big picture learning goals. So it might be legal objections, budgets, and why they chose the product they're already using. And these are going to change as your business evolves. Uh, they'll start big and open-ended, and they'll become more specific over time as you answer more of the big open-ended questions. And I found that that allows me to have a natural conversation while still keeping it on track with things that matter to my product decisions. It doesn't help to ask an hour's worth of questions that you could have Googled, right? That's a huge waste of everyone's time. It also doesn't help to worry about how you're going to expand into Asia when you still haven't figured out if people in your home market care. Like there's a, a right time for the most important current risk. And I plan those out with my team more or less on a weekly cadence. So it's like each week is like, what are the three most important things I could learn about this week that would help us make the next set of product marketing strategy decisions, whatever it's going to be. Uh, and then in my conversations, uh, I just nudge people onto them. 
And although it is biasing to nudge people onto a topic because they kind of get what you're trying to do, as long as you keep the questions about what they are already doing and why, that is in the past and about them instead of in the future and about your idea, people are pretty good at telling you the truth because it's just a fact about their life. They're not going to intentionally sabotage you with fabrications. The way you get lied to is when you ask them for opinions or when you involve your ego. You know, you can say like, if someone starts to get off topic, you can say, hey, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm super curious how you're dealing with email security at the moment. It's something I've been thinking a lot about. Would you mind talking me through it? And they'll go, oh, that is a weird question. They'll talk. And they might ask, they might say, why do you want to know that? It's like, I'm working on a product. I don't have anything to sell right now, but I mean, your experiences would super help me if you'd be willing to share them. They'll go, okay. And they'll just tell you. Occasionally, you run into a grumpy person who won't say anything. It's like, quit wasting my time. Give me the pitch. And it's like, fine, you're not going right. to learn from a grump, grumpy person. Uh, but you can learn from most people if, if you're respectful and you just you, you set them up. And if they get off topic, you go, hey, you were saying something a minute ago I was super interested by. Would you mind telling me more about Boomf? And you bring them back onto the topic you care about. You know, you can, you can give them nudges as long as you're asking about them instead of your idea. The biases don't exist. So I want to just take one more question before I move to a quick round, uh, conscious of time. So you suggest one should take notes during the meeting instead of keeping anything in one's head. And also you have some symbols that you uh, suggest out there. Can you walk me through? Why is that? So someone saying that's a problem is very different from someone saying, oh my God, that's a problem. Like the emotion carries a lot of importance. And so the way I take notes, and this is almost easier now that we're doing most of our customer calls remotely through video, because you can ask for permission to record, and then you can timestamp it and take out clips. There's tools like uh, grain.co that make this really easy. Uh, but it, if you're taking notes, you want to capture the exact words they use and some context, some emotions. Um, and I also use this for quick search. So for example, if they mention another person or a stakeholder or another business, in my notebook, I write a little person symbol next to it. And then at the end of the meeting, I can scan through those people symbol real quick and say, hey, you mentioned uh, Jeremy. Would they be relevant for me to talk to now? And they go, ooh, probably not yet. And it's like, well, where would we need to get to before you felt like that was a relevant introduction for you to make? They'll say, oh, well, once you had this insurance or once you had this demo, and it's like, okay. So you can get these uh, conditional commitments if you, if you take good notes. And you can also share that with your team. And this is where the real value is. Because if you go to your team later and you, they say, how was the meeting? And you say, oh, it's amazing. They loved it. They think we're really smart. Well, that's a huge waste of time. What you've just done is you've become the dictator by default. You've taken the data. You've, you've blended it into this emotional milkshake. And then you've spat out a binary yes or no answer. You basically destroyed all the nuance in your data. Whereas if you've taken decent notes, what I like to do uh, is each week at the all hands meeting, we have a few minutes where anyone who had customer contact that week will take a few minutes to share and basically walk through, not their conclusions, but the actual raw data. I had this meeting with this person. I said this, they said this. Not everything, obviously, because you don't want to do the, the whole meeting twice, but the highlights, the important stuff. And then what that does is it loads the raw data into your entire decision-making team's heads. And then you can use everyone's brains and you can make a much better decision together. And it also removes some of the performance ego of the person who is in the room. Because often when you're the one talking to the customer, you feel, even if you know it's not, you feel like it's your job to get positive responses. 
Whereas when you replay the raw data for the rest of the team, they go, ooh, that was a question, or sorry, ooh, that was a compliment. Ooh, you set that up with a bit of a loaded question. Hmm, that's fuzzy. They kind of made an excuse to end that meeting. We didn't really get a commitment. Tell you what, can we get them on the phone and see if they'd give us this? You can use everyone's strategy. And that's where it's a lot easier to qualify a pipeline and to figure out where you're really at and to make the right product decisions. And so often the learning gets siloed. Like the customer facing team gets all the learning, but then they just spit out a yes, no to the product team or the marketing team or the whoever. And then those people stop trusting the customer team because they say, look, you said yes, and it turned out to be no. And I don't know why you made that decision. And that's crazy. Whereas if you share the raw data, everyone's in it together. Uh, it, it really creates a compounding advantage. Absolutely. And I think those days with the recording, as you mentioned, it makes it much easier uh, to then record things and then listen to the recording to validate uh, learning. So conscious of time, I just want to move to quick round. And I'll ask you a question and you answer it within a minute or so. The first one, uh, you, you were telling me you're, you're living in Spain and I find it interesting, not in, on the other big tech hub. Why is that? <laughs> so I, I, I started my first company really pursuing scale. Uh, I used to say, you know, if it doesn't end with a billion dollars, I don't care about it. And then afterwards, I realized, like, I actually really don't care about scale. That's not my personality type. I, I want enough to take care of myself and my family and feel secure and work with my friends on interesting projects. And so I got more into kind of bootstrap businesses oriented toward freedom. Then I was like, okay, well, it's fun to have a little bit of financial security and money. So I tried to build reliable businesses. And it ended up working fine. I retired when I was about 32. I'm 37 now, I guess. And I was like, I spent a couple of years. I learned to sail. I bought a sailboat. I spent a year or two kind of messing around, sailing around England, France, those sorts of areas. And then I was like, where do I want to be? You know, if I can choose. And I was getting a bit bored and restless. And so I brought the boat to Barcelona, settled down there and started my next business. I'm like, I actually like working with interesting people on fun products. Um, so that, that was what brought me there. And three years in Barcelona, it's amazing. I love the city, still got a place there. Um, but after the first lockdown, I'm sure if, if you're in a big city, you, you understand. Uh, I was like, ah, I want to be out in nature. So now I live in a tiny mountain village near the Pyrenees with 15 residents and zero stores. It's about a 30-minute drive to go get bread. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's awesome. Uh, we got is- a dog, a cat. I'm here with my girlfriend. We're having a great time. So that, that is the fun just right there. What, what are you working on right now, by the way? <laughs> so I, I really love nonfiction. And I've always treated nonfiction in the same way I would treat a technical product in the sense that it, it's going to solve a problem and have a value proposition for its reader and that it should deliver on that value proposition as quickly as possible. You know, a longer book to me is a worse book because it demands more of the reader's time for the same payout, uh, at least for this type of nonfiction. Obviously, it's different for other types of books. And my books have done really well. Uh, they're like high 99th percentile in terms of uh, earnings. Uh, they've been paying my bills on autopilot for seven years and growing year after year. They're, they're taught everywhere. And so my current project is basically to bring that process to other independent nonfiction authors who have something interesting to write and would like to share it. So the website and the book is writeusefulbooks.com. We got a little community of authors who are all helping each other out to make useful books. Uh, and... We're also building, I got a little team and we're working on some software because some of the uh, workflow of books is still like, it feels like you're in the stone ages. It's terrible. 
Uh, and so having gone through it three times myself and working with a bunch of other people who are going through it, we're, we're now building software to kind of fill in some of those gaps and make it easier for indie authors to make a living from their work. I'm sure I can benefit from a process at one point uh, when probably mm-hmm. I'll look at my write my own. Uh, so just the last thing, is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with? A couple of thoughts. I'll, I'll keep them short. One is that most of the entrepreneurial skills, which apply whether you're setting up a separate business or you're doing it as an entrepreneur, they're hands-on skills like skateboarding or pottery. You need to practice them and you're going to mess up. Like the theory, the books, the learning, this podcast will help because they'll help you identify your mistakes sooner so that you can practice better, but you still got to try and you're going to mess up. So find a safe environment. If you're going to try a customer conversation, don't start with that Fortune 500 executive. Start with someone friendly who's willing to have a conversation with you without a lot of justification. Make your mistakes with someone who it's hard to burn bridges with, right? Make it safe for yourself. Wear pads before you go down the half pipe. Um, or, or better yet, don't start with the half pipe. So that's one. It's like practice. Try it. Uh, it's a hands-on skill. And then the second thought is that once you learn this stuff, it's an absolute career multiplier. It lets you do so much stuff. It applies to so many different areas of life in jobs and entrepreneurship and freelancing and consulting, in strategy and boardrooms and negotiation. Very, very valuable. And lastly, I wish more people thought of entrepreneurship as a career path instead of as a product or a company. Uh, you're going to build skills and resources over time. And just like a lot of people think of their career path is like, I'll get this job and that'll give me these skills, which will allow me to get this job. You can uh, approach entrepreneurship the same way. You know, a career is long and you can build the resources and the skills that you need to achieve incredible visions. Uh, like, you know, you see what some of these crazy people are doing uh, with their their startups and their businesses. And it's such a multiplier for having the impact and, and achieving what you want. So, you know, I'd, I'd encourage you to take the long-term view. And even if it's not right for you right now, that doesn't mean it'll never be right for you. And you can start building the skills and resources that enable it later. Um, And yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, I wish you all the very best. And if you want to find my books or if there's something I can help with, all of my details are at robfitz.com. Thanks for those uh, tips and advice. Uh, I will certainly link uh, the link to the book and uh, to your website uh, in the episode note. Uh, Rob, it's been a pleasure having uh, this conversation with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Just before we leave, I'd like to ask our listeners to rate and subscribe to this show so that you don't miss any episode, but also to help others discover this show and benefit from this podcast. You can listen to this show on all your favorite podcast network, whether that's Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or any other network. If you want more information, you can check out my website that is www.lessonsofinnovation.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.